Luke chapter 7. Well, last Sunday we saw that the, the word compassion was the operative word for, the, for that service and passage of Scripture. We saw the centurion's servant who was healed and the widow of Nain's only son who was resurrected by Jesus. Today we're going to learn a lot about John the Baptist, his ministry, his shortcomings, and his relationship to Christ. So let's go into verse 18. It says, Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. So the disciples of John are reporting back to John. Remember we said that John the Baptist also had disciples. And many of his disciples went to follow Jesus. It was a natural pro- progression or transition. Because John said about Jesus, he said, He must increase while I de- decrease. So a lot of his followers made that jump to Jesus. But some of his disciples stayed with him, stayed with John. Now, John's disciples went out to report basically the scope and effect of Jesus' ministry back to John. And the antecedent in verse 17 says that the report of Jesus spread throughout the area. So what that tells us is John's disciples might have had a combination of eyewitness events, things they saw Jesus do himself, with a combination of reports from other people. So why did John have to send out disciples as scouts? Well, by this time... He's imprisoned by Herod the king. So he's in prison now. That's why he sends his disciples out. Uh, Matthew 11, 2 covers that. Well, why is John in prison? Well, let's do a little bit of background about John the Baptist. Uh, John was a hardcore prophet. He was a no-nonsense type of guy. He probably spent most of his adult life in the wilderness. Well, remember, without the influence of man, remember when his parents, when his mom conceived, the Bible says that they were very elderly in years. That's only conjecture, but probably when John you know, was born, they were, they were older, and as he grew up, they probably died while he was a young man. But we know that John went into the wilderness, the Bible tells us that, and he was also personally ministered to by the Holy Spirit. And when it was time to give a message, he didn't pull any punches, not even to the king. So King Herod Antipas, we know from Scripture, he took his brother Philip's wife for himself And John continually opposed that. So, of course, the king had him put in prison. Herod, the Herods, the kings, these guys were a picture of the world system. They were a type of the world. The world has an agenda to move forward, and they don't want godly people to get in their way. You see it. You know, all you have to do is turn on the news. Whether it's the subject of abortion, poverty, stem cell research, ethics in government, keeping God in public life, or accountability for politicians, the world system is always at odds with us as Christians if we're doing what we're supposed to doing, be doing, if we're speaking the truth, if we're being salt and light. Remember, salt is a preservative. And, and many, many years ago, before there was refrigeration, they would salt the meats. So, you know, the whole thing with the acid and killing the bacteria, the meat would last longer if it was salted. But the Bible tells us, Jesus tells us, we're supposed to be salt and light. We're the preservative, because we have the Holy Spirit to preserve this world. It's decaying, it's rotting. Now, whether you're a CNN person or a Fox person or an MSNBC person, all you have to do is look on the news, you know, whether it's the Internet or the TV, and you find this world is going downhill really fast. There's very little good news going on in the world. Uh, I was speaking to a friend of mine. And we were talking about it, and I said, bro, you got to stop watching the news. It makes you angry. You know, I kind of fell into that. I was such a junkie to watch the news, and then I just was like, it's, it's just making me an irritable person, so I stopped watching it. 
for the most part. Let's go into verse 19. It says, And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Now, John used to be, remember, he was in the wilderness. He used to be free to roam, the great outdoors, having a diet of locusts and honey. Now John's shut up in prison. He's got time to sit and think. John may be thinking, well, Jesus is the Messiah. He's supposed to be conquering. And right about now, he should be breaking me out of prison, and we should be fighting arm in arm to take down Rome. Is John doubting? Aren't the following quotes from John about Jesus this? I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandal strap of his shoes. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And like I said before, John said about Jesus, he must increase while I decrease. But John is doubting. Do you think John's in good company? Well, look at Jonah. Look at David. Sure, sure he doubted. Look at some of those Psalms. Why, why did the, the wicked prosper? You know, what's going on here? He kept fleeing from Saul. What about Jeremiah? But I am a youth. I can't do this, Lord. I'm just a young person. Elijah, he found out Queen Jezebel was after him, and he fled. He ran as far as he could. He was terrified. Gideon, he was threshing the wheat in the wine press because he was afraid that anybody would see him. He was afraid of people coming and attacking him. And when God called him to do his will, he kept testing God, you know, kept doing the fleece test. And also Moses. But what about you? What about me? Lord, is it part of the plan for me to be unemployed, to be flat broke? Lord, I'm I'm unhealthy. I'm alone. I'm persecuted. The answer may be yes for now. One of the hardest things for Christians for us to understand is understanding the will of God, trying to, you know, be in prayer and be in the word of God and understand what his will is for us. And sometimes we go through these hard times, but in good times, it's great to do Bible studies about Romans 5 and 1 Peter 1 and James 1 about refining and building character and building patience. But in bad times, sometimes those we, we kind of default to the doubt mode, right? And if that's you today, it's okay. It's part of, part of being human. It's normal. It happened to God's people, and yes, it does happen to us. But hang in there. God loves you, and he hasn't forgotten about you. Verse 21. It says, in that very hour, he cured many people of their infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits. And to many who were blind, he gave sight. Then Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. One thing about Jesus' healings is... They were never a circus act, and they were never, ever tied to money. Unfortunately, we sometimes get a different picture of that uh, in some of Christianity that we see today. If somebody came to me and said, Joe, you know, God has given me the gift of healing. I, everyone I pray for gets healed. What do I do? You know what I tell them to do? I'd say find the closest children's hospital, go down there, start healing those kids, and clean the place out. Right? That's what you should be doing if you have the gift of healing. Let's take a turn to Isaiah 35, 3 through 6. Isaiah 35, 3 through 6. 
It says, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb sing. For the water shall burst forth in the wilderness. These are more messianic prophecies. And right here in the scripture in Luke, we see that these things are literally being fulfilled. So these messianic proofs help John and the disciples get reinforced about who Jesus is. Jesus fulfilled messianic prophecy by leading by example. He could have, he could have been insulted when John's disciples came to him. He could have really been insulted and offended that they were actually questioning him after all the things he had done. He could have berated them and browbeat them. He could have lectured them. But he didn't do that. Instead, his actions spoke louder than his words. And this is a good object lesson for all of us. People don't care a whole lot about what you have to say about God if your actions don't follow your words. They don't care. They're not going to listen to you. And, and please don't speak for God if you're not walking for God. People will notice. And you know what? When I go through periods in my life where I'm just not right with the Lord, sometimes I think it's better to just keep my mouth shut, you know, and clean up my act first. But anyway, as, that's as a Christian, to repent and, and do the right thing. I remember... Uh, I, I had a woman in the back of my squad car. I was driving her to the court, and uh, she's lecturing me and, and talking, arguing with me about doctrine, and I'm thinking, how ironic. She's in the back of a squad car, and she's arguing with me about Christian doctrine. I didn't have the heart to rebuke her. I just kind of listened to her. But, you know, the Bible says that it's glorious to suffer persecution for the name of Christ, but it's shameful to suffer persecution as an evildoer. If you are doing the, the right thing for the Lord and, and you're, uh, you know, doing what he's called you to do and you suffer persecution, that's glorious. But the Bible says don't, don't suffer persecution as an evildoer. Don't be a, a, a thief or a, a, some, assaulting somebody. You know, you should practice, we should practice what we preach. Verse 23, it says, And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Offended, another translation, is caused to stumble. The Greek word is scandalon which is where we get the word scandal from. Now, the word literally means a trap stick. Now, I know Pastor Anthony loves when I talk about Bugs Bunny. That's his favorite cartoon. <laughs> Remember the Bugs Bunny cartoons where they'd have the, the trap and they'd have this, like, stick, and there would be a string, and Elmer Fudd or somebody would be behind the tree, and they'd pull the, the, the stick, and the trap would fall down? Well, that's what a, that actual stick is, is considered a scandal on. They actually had those primitive types of traps. Uh, so the Greek is so picturesque, it's pretty neat. But trapped by what? What is Jesus talking about here? You know, blessed are those who is not offended or trapped because of me. Trapped by what? Maybe a false idea of who Jesus is. Do you realize that what you believe about Jesus Christ will determine your eternal security? It is very important not to be trapped falsely about what you think about who Jesus is. You know, some pr impressions that people have about Jesus is like he's some dude in a tie-dye shirt prancing through a field of buttercups with flowers in his hair. You know, Jesus is the blessed God who left his lofty abode in heaven to come down and make expiation for our sins. That's who Jesus is. It's so important that Paul says in Galatians 1.8 and 1.9, 
he said, if, if anyone, if we or an angel from heaven, or if we or an angel or anybody else preach to you a gospel, other than what you have received, let him be anathema, let him be accursed. And he re- repeats the same thing in the next verse. It's very important about what you believe about Jesus Christ. People may stumble or be embarrassed about maybe coming forward after the service uh, to receive Jesus, or maybe feel ashamed if relatives or friends make fun of you and call you a Jesus freak or a Bible thumper. But just remember, Jesus wasn't ashamed, he wasn't stumbled, he wasn't offended, and he wasn't embarrassed to hang on that cross and bear my filthy sins and your filthy sins collectively for all of eternity. Because he didn't deserve those sins, but he went to the cross willingly to bear that shame. But Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down willingly. Verse 24. When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. After the doubt and the double-checking done by John, Jesus still praises John. He sets the crowd straight regarding who John the Baptist is. And guess what? He does the same thing with you and me. No matter how many times we are abject failures, he still presents us blameless to the Father. If you're in Christ and you're sorry for what you've done, you don't have to feel worthless. You don't have to feel ashamed. It's forgotten from the east to the west. The Lord has totally forgotten it. And the Lord will come before the Father as our perfect defense counsel and say, yes, he did that, but I paid for it. It's on my account. 24, he speaks about a reed. Now, he's, of course, he's talking about John the Baptist here. And he asked the people what they went out to the wilderness to see John the Baptist. What did they expect to see when they saw John? A reed shaken by the wind. Now, a reed is a tall, slender grass that grows in wet, marshy areas. The reeds, if you watch them, it's actually kind of soothing to sit there and watch the reeds. There's like a hundred of them. And as the wind blows, they blow to the east and they blow to the west. It's kind of like a soothing thing. Wherever the wind blows, the reeds will bend according to that wind. But Jesus said that what he's saying is this is a picture. What did you want to see, a reed shaken by the wind? Did you want to see a compromiser, somebody that blows to and fro with every wind of doctrine? The false prophets compromised, which landed them favor among men and monarchies. 586 B.C., it's a historical fact. The Babylonians came in, besieged Jerusalem, destroyed it. Slaughtered people, you know, busted up the temple, the whole thing. It was coming. 587, 588 B.C., the false prophets would say to the king, oh, the Babylonians, they're not coming. Everything is fine. There's peace. Don't worry about it. They'll never get into the, they'll never get past the walls. But the true prophets, Habakkuk knew what was going on, Jeremiah knew what was going on, and uh, they were considered unpatriotic for telling the kings and those in authority, the Babylonians are coming, it's because of our sin. What? How could you say that? That's unpatriotic. You know, Jeremiah, they were, they were punished for that. But 
you didn't see the compromising with these prophets. You didn't see the compromising with John the Baptist. And you won't see compromising in God's word. Has the Ten Commandments changed in all these years? Have they changed? Is it still wrong to murder, to steal, to lie, to commit sexual sins, to envy, to disrespect God? No matter how many times or how many ways the times change over the centuries, God's word doesn't change. What's truly right and wrong doesn't change, period. It's the end of the story. And in verse 25, he said, okay, the reed shaken by the wind, you didn't go see that, but did you go to see someone clothed in soft garments? That's celebrity status. That's a pampered so-called spokesperson for God. Now, why would they be in king's courts? Well, like I said before, the false prophets, the false spokespersons for God would tell the kings and the people everything that they wanted to hear. It was very lucrative to reject God's word and tickle the ears of the people. It kind of reminds me of the mirror, mirror on the wall doctrine. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? Is it me? So it's the same type of doctrine. You know, it's, you, you're saying you, you want to hear what you want to hear. And you'll put people, the kings would put people and surround themselves uh, with these people who told them what they wanted to hear. I've got to tell you, it's sad to see Christian leaders and evangelists buddy up to important people of the world, politicians, people of questionable character. They make friends with the world system. You see, a lot of these people, they start out good. But over time, the more they make friends with the world, you start to see their doctrine go downhill. It happens all the time. They make friends with ecumenical leaders. They make friends with politicians. And then what they say from the pulpit, they have to be careful because it goes out and it's recorded and it goes through the news stations. And they have to watch their words because they don't want to say anything that's going to offend people. The more these people make friends with the world, the more their doctrine goes downhill. That's a fact. kind of reminds me of Kings and Chronicles and how the Jewish people stopped relying on God. And they made allies, sometimes with the Syrians, sometimes with the Assyrians, sometimes with Egypt, and only to their demise, because these people would just turn on them. And, and that's not what we're supposed to do. Our ally is supposed to be with God. He's the one who's going to vindicate us. Karl Marx derogatorily said about religion, he said, religion is the opiate for the masses. And you know what? He's right in a sense, because you can control the masses if you can control religion. But you know what you can't control? An individual person's relationship with God. If everybody on the planet decided today to repent and receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior and had that relationship with God, they couldn't be controlled. We saw that in the Roman, uh, the first few centuries of the Roman Empire. They couldn't control these Christians. As, much as, and as many Christians as they tortured and killed, more would spring up because these people had an individual relationship with Jesus Christ as their Savior. And, you know... Unfortunately, um, even some organizations uh, throughout the centuries, Christian organizations, kind of did that. They controlled the masses through religion. And it's what the Antichrist is going to do with the false prophet. The Bible tells us that the dragon, who is Satan, the beast, who is the Antichrist, and the false prophet, who will be the future ecumenical leader of the world, the trinity of stupidity, will all get together and they will control the masses through, partially through religion. But not John the prophet. He was a true prophet. And like I said before, the prophets got abused because of their message. Now, why is that? Why was it that we, we would look back into history and even Jesus talks about all the prophets who got abused 
because of saying the word of God. Because it goes against our sinful nature for somebody to say, thus saith the Lord, you're a mess, <laughs> you're sinning, and you know, judgment awaits you. That's not a nice message to hear. You want people to say nice things towards you. So these prophets, again, would get abused because for the most part, the people had sinful hearts. They only wanted to hear nice messages. Verse 26 through 27, Jesus says, So what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Messianic prophecy. Verse 27 is actually taken right out of Malachi 3.1. I also want to read Isaiah 40.3-5. Turn to Isaiah 40.3-5. And this will sound familiar to you. It says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. John the Baptist, we know, came in the spirit of Elijah to pave the way or to prepare the hearts of the people to receive the Messiah. You know what? We're also considered, we also could look at it that way. We're also called to kind of have a John the Baptist type ministry. It's kind of like when you talk to somebody. You know, you talk to somebody about the Lord. Maybe it's in a waiting room at the doctor's office or a place to get your oil changed. And you start talking to somebody and all of a sudden it's like they want to receive the Lord and you're just kind of blown away. But what what's quite possibly would have happened is nine Christians before you worked on that person and the tenth time was the one that did it, right? Or you feel like you're, you're talking to somebody and you just, maybe relatives, you talk to them for years and you just feel like they're just not getting it. But somewhere down the road, someone's going to say something to them and they're going to say, you know what, it's going to click. They're going to realize that this is right. So we have different stages in our ministry to reconcile people to God. You know, the Bible says some seed, some plant the seeds, some water, but who gives the increase? It's God that gives the increase. Verse 28, and and Jesus says this, For I say to you, among all those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, is greater than he. Out of all the prophets, uh, Jesus names John the greatest of all, which says really something important about a prophet whose only job was to prepare the Messiah. A lot of these prophets had a lot of jobs. God had a lot of things for them to do. But John's basic job was to prepare the people's hearts to receive Jesus Christ. And the fact that he's the most important prophet shows the importance of the Messiah to the Jewish people and, subsequently, the importance of the Christ to us, how important Jesus Christ is to us, right? Jesus said, you know, the least in the kingdom of God, or heaven, I'm sorry, God is greater than he. And what that means is a point of privilege or position, not character. Jesus kept speaking of the kingdom of heaven coming, and he likened it to many examples that people could understand. It's like a mustard seed. It's like a dragnet. It's like hidden treasure, right? But John the Baptist died prior basically to the fullness of the kingdom of heaven coming. He died prior to the cross, the resurrection, and the dispensation of the Holy Spirit. And all those who transitioned into that time period, the age of grace that we now live in after Jesus, right, lived a much greater privilege 
spiritual heritage or spiritual legacy. In a nutshell, what Jesus is doing is he's contrasting the life prior to and then subsequent to the cross, the resurrection, and the dispensation of the Holy Spirit. So there's a huge difference in the lives of the people before that and our lives after that. And I think sometimes we take for granted the fact that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We have the counsel of the Holy Spirit. We have a part of God living inside of us. Verse 29, it says, When all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. Now, again, this goes back to John's ministry in Luke chapter, or in, yeah, Luke chapter 3. In paving the way, John's baptism was for the repentance and the remission of sins. Jesus' ministry was reconciliation between God and man, direct reconciliation. Jesus' baptism, the Bible tells us, was with the Holy Spirit and fire. I've got to say, modern evangelism seems to be focusing a lot on choosing Christ, but you know, a lot of times they leave out the repentance part, and that's a problem. Because you can't just add Jesus to your war chest. You can't live a self-directed, sinful life and continue, want to continue that and then have Jesus added to your war chest like a long list of toys or idols. It doesn't work that way. There has to be repentance. And what is repentance? Repentance is a change of mind or having regrets. But about what? Well, about what you previously thought was right and wrong and what you previously thought about spiritual matters. The King James Study Bible says this about repentance. It says, One cannot truly believe in Christ as Savior without changing one's mind about one's relationship to him. Because we're spiritually dead before Christ. Christ makes us alive. He makes us spiritually alive. So we have to fall in line with what God's Word teaches. It's even amazing how sometimes double-minded Christians are about God's Word. You can show them scriptures about what they're doing to the opposite And they'll look at the scripture and they'll listen to you and they'll read it and they'll say, but I feel, but I believe, but I think, but God told me. Now, those things are all good if they're in line with scripture. But if they're not in line with what God has already established through his word, then God didn't tell you that. It's that simple. Acts 2.38, Peter's call to repentance preceded baptism and the receiving of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul said that godly sorrow produces repentance to salvation. Matthew 4:17. Jesus said, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." Acts 17:30. Paul said, "God commanded all mankind everywhere to repent." And Matthew 3:8. John the Baptist said, "To bear fruits worthy of repentance." And what he's saying is, there should be a visible difference in your life as a result of repentance. Verse 30. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So why did the religious leaders of all people deny the counsel of God for themselves? Too much worldly comforts to lose. They would have had to humble themselves and dip those fancy clothes in the Jordan. Remember, the religious leaders at the time believed, and it actually worked on the people, that they could look more religious and more spiritual if their robes were fancier, if they made faces when they fasted. It was all an outward appearance. So they would have, they would have had to lose the center of attention to John and ultimately Jesus. And they would have had to repent and come face to face with how corrupt they actually were. The Jewish Talmud, writings from the rabbis about the times that were going on, spoke of the rampant and offensive corruption within the religious system, especially from the household 
of the high priesthood of Annas. Should sound familiar to you. There was practically a large-scale flea market taking place in the temple. Prior to Jesus driving the animals out and turning over the money uh, changes, tables of the money changers in John chapter 2, and the proceeds were going mostly to the household of Annas, the religious leaders. So they had too much to lose to repent. They, they, that worldly influence was too strong for them to turn from that and repent and actually follow God. Verse 31 and 32. And, and the Lord said, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance, and we mourned to you, and you did not weep. It's child, childlike nature is very important. Jesus spoke about that, to have that childlike faith, to have that humility, to have that innocence, but not childishness. It's like childlike versus childish. And these people were behaving childish. It was a common practice of children to try to occupy themselves. Back then they had those open markets and they would sell all kinds of things, you know, food and, and wares, whatever you needed, supplies. So the children would occupy themselves in the markets while their parents would buy supplies or this is just a place that the children would congregate. And they would have two extreme games of make-believe that the children would play to imitate adults. One was sort of like, I guess, playing house or something like that or ring Do you ever play that how many people ever heard of the game ring Alario? wow how many of you grew up in staten island <laughs> and i remember when i was a kid i could run from from sun up to sundown now i can't run two blocks anyway that has nothing to do with the uh the story here but the two things that the children would play one would be a, a wedding celebration they would play play wedding and if the flute was played it would it would get people to dance and the other thing would be a funeral procession, the, se- the second thing, where a dirge would be played and people would be sad and cry. So these are things that children would imitate. And Jesus is likening these children's games to the behavior of adults. Verse 33 and 34, Jesus said, For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus and John had very different ministries that achieved the same goal, the will of God. John was stern, he was sobering, and he was strict. Jesus was gracious, he was celebratory, and he was casual. Regarding John, the people said, the naysayers would say, he has a demon. He's mad. He's too conservative. We haven't had a prophet in 400 years, and we're not used to this. Regarding Jesus, he's too casual. Look at the company he keeps. He's too liberal. He should be judging these people instead of hanging out with them. Kind of sounds like Goldilocks theology, doesn't it? You know, this doctrine's too soft. This doctrine's too firm. Lord, send us a doctrine that's just right. You could do a lot with children's uh, tales, but it's true. They were behaving like children. But do you ever meet people like that? No matter what you do, no matter what you say, you just can't please them. And it usually transforms over to their spiritual life. They just can't sit in a service, listen to the message, fellowship with believers. They have to cause problems, and they're never happy. Some people have critical spirits and believe that the message is good for everyone else but themselves. Sometimes you you do a message and you see uh, something that's really poignant and a spouse will elbow the other one. That's for you. But what about you? What about the person who's elbowing, right? (laughs) See, you're laughing. Some of you have done it. But anyway, um, it's obviously Jesus aimed this at those people with the hard hearts, mostly the religious leaders, but it's a good lesson for us today. And verse 35, 
It says, but wisdom is justified by all her children. Wisdom is personified, obviously, like a woman here. It's the, um, the, the pronoun here, her. But much like the beginning of Proverbs 9, wisdom is justified or proved to be right by her children or the fruit or visible evidence. In other words, the fact that the fruit in the form of changed lives from John and Jesus was good proved that this was the wise path to take regardless of what the naysayers were saving and behaving. John the Baptist, what can we learn from John the Baptist? Well, he answered the call of God. Now we have to transfer it to ourselves. Are we being obedient to what God has called us to do? Are we dilly-dallying? Are we procrastinating? Are we sitting on the fence? Or are we like John the Baptist? John was not influenced at all by men or the world system. Is there too much worldliness in our lives? And you know what? Every Christian, we can all look at ourselves and find at least some worldliness that we have to root out. It's tough because we live in the world. We're bombarded by images. We're bombarded about how we should take care of ourselves and whatever we see, we should get. You know, it's a big marketing thing. So we have to look at ourselves and, and, you know, John should be our example in that sense and say, is there any worldliness that I could root out of my heart? John the Baptist, he prepared hearts of the people to receive Jesus. Have we dropped that ball in our lives? Do we know that God has called us to, to, you know, just know enough about the Bible and and know enough about God's love to share it and not kind of hold it for ourselves, right? John the Baptist, he was wise enough to allow Jesus to take center stage, allow Jesus to take center stage for himself. John said, he must increase while I decrease. Never steal God's glory. Let's never get caught up in thinking that when great things happen through our lives, that it's us. Something about our dynamic personality, something, how how God made me so much better than everybody else. Look at me. Never steal God's glory. Always give God the glory for doing something great in your life. And John the Baptist, he gave his life for the cause of Christ. Is our life centered only around ourselves? If I remember my Greek mythology, there was a a guy named Narcissus. And if I remember the story, interesting tales that we can actually learn. Obviously, they're not true. But Narcissus was incredibly handsome. And he would go through the woods every day, and the wood nymphs would fall in love with Narcissus. And he would break their hearts because he would never return that affection to them. So one day, one of the wood nymphs nymphs prayed and, and said, I just want Narcissus to feel what we've felt all this time. So one of the gods heard what the, what the wood nymph prayed, and they granted that. And they cursed the Narcissus, so the next person that he saw, he would fall in love with, and that affection wouldn't be returned to him. So Narcissus was walking through the woods like he usually does, and he passes by a body of water, and he looks in the water, and he sees his reflection, and he stops. And he, he falls in love with his own reflection, right? And he looks at that reflection, and he's captivated. He can't leave that pond. And he starts to get hungry now, and the day goes on, and he's heartbroken because he's in love with that picture of himself. And days go on, and he gets thinner and thinner and looks worse and worse, and he becomes more depressed, and eventually he dies from malnutrition. So what is the moral of that story? (laughs) Being self-centered will kill you. (laughs) I just came up with that now. I was like thinking, where am I going with this? But it's true. And you know what? People who are self-centered, it can keep them from coming to the cross because all they think about is themselves. They may have to repent. They may have to uh, do things differently. They may have to think differently about what they thought. So self-centered is is a bad thing. But going back to John, John was human, human, 
And when times got tough and things seemed hopeless, he doubted. But we've all been there at one time or another. And the real question is, how do we handle it? The interesting thing is John the Baptist, when he doubted, he went to Jesus. He couldn't physically go, but he sent his disciples to Jesus, right? And that's a good lesson for us. We can't really say what John did between the time that the report came back from his disciples about the Lord and the time of John's death. We don't know what he did. But you know what? He didn't cave into evil. How do we know that? Because he would have been released. He could have said, Herod, hey, sorry, gaff on my part. Sorry, a little political gaffe. Apologize for that. Listen, I'm going to tell everybody what a great guy, guy you are, Herod. Please let me out of here. He would have let him loose. So John did not cave into evil, and he lost his life for that. But John most likely went to prayer, meditating on the word of God, and allowed God to refresh him prior to his death, which was a death that glorified God. So John the Baptist is a great lesson for all of us. 